everyone, and welcome to another episode of Words, Images, and Worlds. I am joined today by Matt Madden, comics creator, author, educator. Uh, I've read your Vita, so I would add the word scholar, scholars there. Um, so welcome, Matt, and thank you so much for joining the, the podcast today. Thanks for having me, Jason. My pleasure. I am intrigued by your work, uh, interested in it. I tend to go into middle grades and young adult fiction on the show, but I always circle back to comics just because it's part of my reading history. So just to kick us off, a question that I often ask uh, would be those initial draws for you to comics. You talk about reading and writing as well, but uh, thinking about that path to comics. Mm hmm. Well, um, I sort of backed into comics in, in, in a way. Um, a lot of people who make comics uh, grow up with that as their their obsessive single goal from the age of eight years old or something when they start usually getting really into superhero comics in America, in the U.S. at least, or, you know, daily newspaper strips and that kind of thing. Uh, and I read uh, I read a smattering of comics as a kid, but I wouldn't describe myself as a fanboy at all. I was more into kind of, I don't know, Godzilla movies and making model airplanes and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. uh, but so really it wasn't until I was in my teens, kind of mid to late teens, that I had a series of mostly, you know, um, arbitrary discoveries in bookstores and dorm rooms and, you know, uh, various places of a whole variety of comics um, that just opened my eyes in a very dramatic and sudden way to the richness of the medium. So I was discovering, um, uh, they were just starting to reprint. This is like the mid 1980s. They were just starting to reprint some of George Harriman's crazy cat comics and, you know, rediscovering old newspaper masters, Windsor McKay. Um, I got to see an, art, an exhibit of his artwork early on before he was, you know, uh, as hallowed as he is now. Um, Robert Crumb and all the underground comics I was discovering. Uh, I was discovering, I inherited a box of old heavy metal magazines from the 19, late 1970s and 80s, which was a period when they were publishing a lot of amazing, some of the best European kind of high fantasy art of the 70s, Mobius and Enki Bilal and people like that. Um, and uh, so all this stuff kind of was hitting me all directions. And um, at that point, I was, you know, kind of more into music. I was going to a lot of shows and playing guitar and unsuccessfully trying to start a band. And at a certain point, I realized that comics was like this really exciting um, medium that I felt like pe people weren't really taking advantage of how many possibilities they were. So I just, and the, the crucial final point was that I then, this, I was in Ann Arbor, Michigan at the time at, at the U of M, and I met a cartoonist named Terry LeBan who turned me on to the world of fanzines and mini comics, which I had not been aware of. Um, this is, you know, several years before the, before the internet and before email started becoming a thing. So uh, he turned me on to this whole kind of subculture of comics and music fanzines and, uh, you know, collage stuff and mail art that people were exchanging through the, through the, through the post, through the, through the mail. Mm -hmm. And uh, and and without any without, you know, going to art school or asking permission or, you know, doing an apprenticeship, whatever you just, you know, 
make something, you take it to the to the local photocopy shop and you you know, print up 20 of them and you know share them with your friends and trade them in the mail. Um, and that's really how I started doing it. And it wasn't, and even then it wasn't like I I found my 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 calling. I was just like, oh, this is like a fun, really intriguing thing I'm gonna try out. And I just started and and couldn't really stop. I just kept on making them. And I the more I did it, the more I enjoyed it and the more richness and possibility I saw there. Yeah, there's definitely, I, I love what you said there about reading widely. I, I was a comic obsessive kid with um, mm -hmm. superheroes and things. And I work on another podcast with a friend called The, Com the Comic Obsessive of all things. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but there's so much out there. Uh, and, you know, there were zines back in the day and there still are to some degree. But now we have this proliferation of the internet and, and yeah. sharing your work out there. Um, you've now kind of traveled, you're, you teach comics. Is this true? And teach uh, yeah. Visual mm -hmm. arts. yeah. I've been teaching um, off and on. Uh, yeah. I'm not, I'm not currently teaching in an institution, but I taught at the school of visual arts for uh, 11 years when, when Jessica Abel, my wife and I were living in, in New York throughout the two thousands. Um, and these days I'm teaching classes online through the sequential artist workshop, which was started by my friend, Tom Hart. And we taught at SVA together and he decided to, start his own concern. I think I, I might have come across uh, Jessica's work before I came across yours. I think someone gave me a copy of Trish Trash. Mm -hmm. um, okay, ago. sure. Yeah. 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 Um, so going with that idea of the visuals, you, you're also known for a book called 99 Ways to Tell a Story, mm -hmm. uh, which is a brilliant and wonderful book. Um, for somebody that is looking for a way to tell a story or for someone that's maybe even a little critical of, of comics or just kind of mm -hmm. getting new to the idea of telling a story visually, um, what do visuals do as far as helping tell stories? I, I kind of have an answer to this question <laughs> for me, but I would also love to hear uh, your ideas on it as well. All right. Well, uh, I mean, there's a lot of different things. There's not uh, one thing that visuals uh, bring to to uh, to reading, whether it's comics or you know textbooks or uh, you know magazine articles. Um, but uh, for comics, the visual aspect um, has, first of all, a you know seductive appeal. There's like a lot of us when we do start reading comics. It's not because of the stories. It's because we see something at a, at a friend's house or on a bookshelf somewhere. Then the drawing just like grabs us for whatever reason, you know, because it's really beautiful, because it's really ugly, because it's really weird, because the colors are, you know, interesting. Um, and that is a really powerful tool uh, to into uh, a work. Um, it cuts both ways because it also, if you then pick something up that looks great and then you read it and there's not much to it. That can be a bit of a, it can be a real let, a particular letdown when you, you want the everything to work at the same level as the art does. So, um, uh, so luckily that's not the only thing that the visuals do. That's like one function they have. Um, the other thing they do is they, uh, they create, um, you know, along with, uh, well, particularly along with graphic design in the sense that you put stuff in panels, you put them on pages, you put it in a book form, and uh, even doing it randomly, you're going to have a story. You know, the, the way people read, they want to make connections between stuff. Uh, people read images. We, we live in a, I think it's changing largely because of the internet, 
but there's a perception when I was growing up that you know we it's a we have a text when you're older at least you, everything's about text and reading uh -huh. uh, and you're expected to you know de-emphasize visual stuff uh, and the, the idea of a book with pictures in it is like well that's to help you know reluctant readers and stuff like that um, and which is not a bad thing because I that's so there's another thing that visuals do especially for young readers is that a comic book um, is appealing. It's it is easier to read, not which is not to say more simplistic, but it does when you have the balance of text and image uh, that you can you can you know play off of each other as you go. It makes it much easier to orient. Like if you're a, if you're a, a second language learner, for example, comics are a great way to enter into the language because you always have these context clues in in the visuals to help you you know, understand an idiom in the dialogue or, you know, figure out what they're talking about when, when the, when there are big words that you don't know, you can figure it out from the drawings often. Um, but I also resist people saying, oh, comics are good to get young readers, re reluctant boys to read, to uh -huh. read stuff and then eventually put those things away and start reading, you know, Dostoevsky. Um, Cause some people do that and that's great. Others mm -hmm. don't, you know, they just, they like reading comics and that's fine because uh, the richness of comics is that um, uh, beyond whatever the quality of the drawing is, all that stuff works together to create more than just an illustration of whatever the text is saying, uh, which is a fairly condescending idea that a lot of you know non-comics readers, especially you know 50 years ago, I, I do think this is changing culture in the in the culture at large. But this idea that like well you know like the classics illustrated model of which of, you know, uh, having sort of simplified versions of the, th of the scarlet letter or something. And you just illustrate it basically. Mm. Sure. That's maybe not a very good way of, of telling, telling, doing a rich storytelling uh, visually, but, um, but there are all kinds of other things you can do with uh, the, the, the rhythm, the pacing, repetition of the drawing, using things like symmetry and mirroring to to you know this in in and that's like we're talking literature and and high art there where it's like talking about a work that has light motifs and things that recur and certain themes and symbols. You can do that amazingly well and very subtly with comics, like um, you know, by having a certain shape that recurs or a certain you know animal that appears in the background. Where which become quite belabored in a novel, where you're like, once again, she noticed a, a black squirrel on the windowsill, you know, and it becomes really obvious. But in comics, you can do very subtle stuff like that, um, but you know, by by weaving the drawings into the narrative, um, and you know, I could keep going. There's there's probably more things that it brings, but there there's uh, it, it, it's one of the richness of comic is is trying to you know keep on finding new new finding and discovering um, new ways that that the visuals and the text and and really importantly, the the book, you know, the layout and design aspects uh, create meaning. Yeah, yeah, I, I love what you said. I like cutting both ways, too, because I used to work at a university uh, in a reading department and I was sort of the comics guy. And so it was always the thing of talking about comics as this way of supporting readers. But very often when I would introduce comics to pre-service teachers, uh, which, you know, normally older uh, mm -hmm. in their twenties, people predominantly female uh, or female presenting the sort of like dominant discourse in the room was, well, this was hard for me to read. 
Mm-hmm. And, and so it's kind of funny because uh, it, they do tell two different stories. It's this simple way that, that people talk about, but it's really at the same time, incredibly complex. And when I have someone that says, oh, oh they're so simple. I always just want to give them like suck rubber baby and go here. Here mm-hmm. you go. See, see what you think, you know, sure, um, sure. just to trouble that a little bit. Um, yeah, yeah but it's, it's true that if you if you haven't grown up reading comics, uh, and especially if you're a little bit resistant to taking them seriously, it they actually can be very hard to read. Like uh, in the sense that um, I some and it might be dependent on the type of you know learner you are and, and what kind of reader you are. But I've you know I've seen people who are you know college professors sometimes who are like looking at a comic and you know you realize that they're like one common thing people do if they're coming from being prose readers exclusively is just reading all of the text on a whole page and then sort of going back and sort of looking at the images and not being able to code switch between those two things. And that's why I mentioned like the internet, because I think uh, the the visual, the text image and textual kind of interplay that you get every day on, on social media, on blogs, on websites um, is, is uh, you know, and advertising of course, um is closer to the way comics work than traditional like a block of text type of, of reading that that uh some people take as the model for what like you know proper reading is um and some people don't even are you know have trouble i mean the thing is about comics is that we still basically read it the same way we read text you know from top to bottom from from left to right with some weird stuff where you need to figure out how to sort of zigzag you know a little bit more uh, a little bit more artfully than when it's just you know straight lines, but the but the basic principle is usually very similar. Um, but I've seen people have trouble with that, just like you know not not knowing which panel to read in in which order. So uh, it's uh, and it definitely has its complexity. I've never thought about code switching in that way. Uh, the visual and yeah, the, I mean that's probably like not the that. right. I think multimodal is is more of the more you know proper kind of academic word. This idea of like switching from the the visual to the textual mode. Um, and again, that you know, I really I keep on coming back to this idea that comics is like really three. There's words and images, but there's the design page layout element that's sort of like the glue between the two. They the way they all fit together. Um, is is an equally important, you know, aspect of how comics work. And even as somebody that's reading, that's been reading comics since I was seven, I still sometimes get to the end of a book or even the end of a page and have to check myself and go, okay, I'm being, I'm paying attention to this dominant form. I'm paying attention to the text or I really need to go pick that up. Um, so yeah. it's, it's definitely, it's a, a beautiful medium. Yeah. And um, your book, Ex Libris, kind of celebrates that that ironically talking about this in a week where I've been hearing about uh, funding for libraries being closed down mm-hmm. um, the yeah. the idea of stepping into a library space and in that book I don't think I'm giving too much away here but just uh, slap me across zoom if I am um, person enters uh, a library kind of space a yeah. book room and starts to journey through these different types of books. And the the thing that is so cool is that as they're journeying through, the the styles change, they're learning things, and they, they sort of question themselves in the mm-hmm. process too. Right, right, exactly. Uh, yeah, no, that's, um, 
Ex Libris is very much a celebration of reading and bookstores and libraries and librarians and uh, the the importance of and the interconnectedness of, of all that. And a theme of the book uh, for me was the extent to which our identities are made of, of the stuff we read, you know, obviously also the TV we watch and the people we hang out with, but our, our relationship with books, you know, is a very physical one and very palpable of picking it off the shelf and flipping through it and entering into that world, that imaginary world. Um, and to add yet another aspect of the visual richness of comics and what the visual aspect brings, the drawing style that, the, you know, the change of drawing style from one artist to another, from one genre to another, from one uh, national, you know, culture to another, um, is so much more dramatic than reading a, a translated novel or watching a foreign film with subtitles, uh, or, or even switching from watching, you know, a, a romance, romantic comedy to a science fiction movie uh, or book. You know, the the drawing style really pops out, and that's something I had a lot of fun with. in Ex Libris is really sort of pushing the extremes that you can get, uh, you know. Um, uh, sort of hop from one imagining world where the reality is palpable in the in the the line the way the lines are drawn in the in the color uh, colors that the color palette that's used um, all these things have a kind of very physical palpability that I think is a really uh, important part of the, the comics reading experience. As I think about that book, I think on one hand. I bet that was incredibly fun to explore. Mm -hmm. And on the other, I, I'm sure it was also, was there a level of it that was daunting to sort of switch across styles and, and move that way? Sure. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, it, it took a long time to do it. Not, not, it's not like I was, I was really working on it nonstop. You know, I have two children, Jessica and I went and lived in France for four years in the middle of the whole thing. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, when I was working on it, you're right. It was very fun to do. And I always had fun trying to figure out, oh, what kind of new style can I add here that's going to juxtapose with what came before and and move the story and find stories also that would kind of move the narrative uh, along. Um, but I was also very aware of the fact that um, if I should if I'd written a similar story or just another story in a one and just chosen one pretty simple style with maybe a single color, you know, I could have done a 300 page book probably by the, t the time that it took me because every three or four pages in Ex Libris, I had to stop everything and be like, all right, now I need to learn how to draw in the style of old EC horror comics, for example, and yeah. which I've done in Exercise in Style. There's also in 99 Ways to Tell a Story, there's a little homage to the Exercise in Style uh, exercise, uh, rather the uh, um, Tales from the Crypt, you know, um, EC Comics tradition. Uh, but still, to develop that whole story, I had to, you know, do a lot of copying and like, you know, reading little comics to get the, the sense of the, the storytelling rhythm and the, the very particular narration in those books that has a lot of very corny, you know, over very purple prose and a lot of alliteration and stuff. So okay. all of that stuff, it's fun. You know, it's really rewarding to me. Uh, all of these things. Yeah, and, and 99 Ways to Tell a Story began in part for me as a project to teach myself how to, about comics and how to make comics. So exploring all that stuff is always uh, uh, really rewarding, but it definitely slowed me down. I, I would occasionally think to myself like, wow, I should really just pick a very simple drawing style and, you know, stick to it for like a whole book. But so far, even though 
I can already tell I've got a new book that I'm working on that I, my goal is to stick to one drawing style. But I don't think, oh, but I could do this one chapter where it switches to this other artist and we're seeing it from her point of view. And, you know, mm -hmm. so it, I just find it such a a fun and and expressive part of comics language that I uh, keep on coming back to it. So I was thinking as you were talking about that, the idea of a visual voice. And I, I was going to ask about works to come and, um, you know, next creative directions, but uh, that that idea of switching from voice to voice is, is really interesting and uh, beautiful work in Ex Libris too. Thank you. Well, yeah, I, I definitely, I clearly, you know, looking at just those two books, Ninety Nine Ways and uh, and Ex Libris, there, you know, there's there. I'm jumping around, you know, and being a magpie, you know, taking on all these different voices, drawing styles, cartooning styles, you know. Um, and I do sometimes, you know, I talk to, uh, you know, cartoonist friends or even like at, at book shows when I meet readers and talking to readers and I sort of will say oh, I'm worried about not really having a recognizable style of my own. And invariably we're like, oh, no, you could, you know, even when you see me drawing a Tales from the Crypt story, you can still recognize my hand in there because there is uh, as a as an artist, you know, draw, drawing stuff by hand, which is a big part of comics. Uh for, for most people, whether it's digitally or by hand, there's still, there's a way that your hand moves and expresses itself that is, uh, that is um, as identifiable as, you know, uh, your handwriting in a way. And uh, so you, even when I'm drawing other people's styles, there is a continuity, I think, in, in uh, uh, the, uh, I'm not sure it's a certain quality of, you know, the way the way the kind of lines that I draw, the way I draw figures in space, you know, all these things there. There's certain little things, little details in there that that people recognize as being me. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and for listeners that are interested in exploring more of your work, the, your website is a great place to visit. Um, yeah, any... Madden.com. And I'll, I'll be sure to link it in the description, the little podcast description space. Mm -hmm. uh, any other final words about the love of visual arts or uh, places that people can go or what to expect from you next in uh, the world of creating? I know you also do. You do art exhibits as well from time to time. Is um, that right? I've done a little bit of that. I did. Uh, I, I curated uh, a show while I was living in France, uh, a pretty big show around this group, Ubapo, the next experimental French comic group that I'm associated with, um, mainly through my The 99 Ways to Tell a Story project, where which was, um, I'm going to do the ex super express version of it, but it, it was inspired by a French author who also founded this experimental writer's group called Ulipo, the Workshop for Potential Literature. And uh, there's a comics version of that group. So the basic idea is playing with rules and, you know, kind of game game rules and constraints and restrictions as a way to sort of force yourself into a, a into a corner creatively uh, with the idea that I'll actually rather than uh, and even more than just having having freedom to do whatever, having a, a really weird and uh, uh, restrictive rule can actually push you to new heights of creativity and imagination. So another book I did recently um, came out as a little pamphlet called Bridge. And it's a 20, there's two, so it has two rules that governed its creation, well, without which it would not exist. It's not a story that I had imagined or thought of making. But uh, first of all, it was a 24 hour comic, which some of your comics 
fan listeners might have heard of, which is a project that Scott McCloud, the, the writer of Understanding Comics, invented as a kind of game and creative challenge where the goal is to sit down with, you know, empty blank paper and some pens and paper, pens and erasers, and in 24 hours, dream up, write, and draw a 24-page comic. Mm -hmm. um, so I I've done that a few times over the years, and this particular one I did was in 2013 uh, in France, and uh, it was in a group event with lots, there were like, I don't know, it was online too, so there was like several hundred people doing this. I was invited to be sort of the MC and also um, uh, create an extra constraint, an additional constraint, uh, so that people wouldn't just show up with a story already in their mind and just like tra transcribe their, you know, imagination. And what I came up was with was that every uh, in every story, whatever it was, every page had to take up the same amount of time. So if you chose like one day, every page of your comic would be one day long. So you'd be telling a story that took place in 24 days. It could be 24 seconds, you know. Um, and uh, I opened it up to the, the floor. It was like a public event to give me uh, a time unit to work with. And a friend of mine suggested decades, which means that in this story, every page, 10 years passed. So at first I was like, I'm, I'm screwed. There's no way I can turn this into make a story that's, you know, 24 pages and yet covers 240 years. But, you know, all I could do was just like start problem solving. There was no time. To, I got a time constraint. I got a very difficult creative constraint. There's no time to like fret over it. You just need to start drawing and doodling and making little diagrams and timelines and within a few hours, I come up with this story that I was really pleased with, uh, so much so that I redrew it because, you know, some people can actually come up with a nice looking comic in 24 hours. I, that's beyond my ability. But, you know, I came up with like a, a workable, legible version of it after 24 hours, redrew it, got it published as a pamphlet, and it'll be published next year. Uh, and well, I should end with this, but I'm going to have a, a collection of my my next book will be a collection of short comics that I've done uh, that are all using these kind of creative constraints and rules uh, over the it. last 20 years or so. And so then it's probably going to be called Bridge and Other Comics, uh, named after this, you know, most recent experiment. Um, but yeah, giving these kinds of constraints and, and rules to yourself came out of that original 99 Ways to Tell a Story. There's a lot of it in Ex Libris as well, kind of in, in different levels. And uh, it's been something that's really, you know, directed my my creative life. Fantastic. Well, things to look forward to. And it's always uh, fascinating to read your work. So also fascinating to get to have a conversation with you and, and hear a bit about the person behind the page. Yeah, uh, thanks. And, it was fun. The work that I see around. Yeah, absolutely. Glad to share this. And uh, thanks again. Yeah, thanks for having me. Take care.